The following Knowledge at Warden podcast is brought to you by Vanguard, offering investments designed to help individuals and institutions reach their financial goals. Visit Vanguard.com. Additional support for this podcast comes from Warden Executive Education. For more information on Warden's executive course, Essentials of Management, please visit http colon slash slash executiveeducation.warden.upenn.edu. Last May, Knowledge at Wharton spoke with John Paul McDuffie, a management professor at Wharton and co-director of the International Motor Vehicle Program, about the state of the auto industry. It seems that not much has changed since then, except maybe for the worse. 2006 was the first year since 1991 that Detroit's big three were all in the red. Ford's situation seems direr than ever. Chrysler, which was profitable until mid-2006, is now preparing a restructuring plan to roll out this month. And Toyota has claimed the number two spot in the U.S. auto market, just behind GM. We thought we would check in with John Paul and see what his take on the auto industry is and whether he expects any surprises or new strategies in 2007. Thanks for coming. Glad to be here. Let me just start out with a story I read recently about 2,800 workers at Harley-Davidson Motor Company's largest assembly plant in Chicago who were uh, starting a work stoppage on Friday to protest the company's new wage and benefit plans. The company's response is it doesn't want to find itself, quote, in the same position that the Detroit auto industry is in now, end quote, 10 years down the road. Has the auto industry become kind of the poster child for mismanaged and troubled industries? And is this a fair description? (laughs) Um, I don't think it's a fair characterization of the whole industry. Um, Part of what's very striking about the auto industry in comparison with uh, industries like steel, which we've seen as very troubled in the U.S. in the past, uh, is that there are some very successful companies uh, building cars in the U.S., and there are some ones that are really struggling. Um, and it's not an industry where I think uh, we're, go- we're going to find in 10 or 20 years that there's no auto industry in the U.S. anymore. So um, so that's, that's a difference, and, and uh, there are some reasons having to do with, uh, with the nature of the, the product that seem to guarantee that cars will be built in the U.S. as opposed to all being built somewhere else and, and sent here. Um, are there some badly managed auto companies? Uh, absolutely. Are some of the issues that they deal with common across other U.S. manufacturing industries? Um, absolutely. Could better anticipation of particularly some of these labor-related costs have helped? Um, I think also absolutely. So Harley-Davidson, I think, is probably right in trying to deal proactively with some of these things. It's not a surprise that the union um, will resist or want to negotiate the best kind of deal they can. Um, It often takes crisis to get dramatic movement on the labor side. And this 2006, as you pointed out, was certainly a year of crisis and uh, dramatic changes for both GM and Ford in their labor contracts. That's interesting. Apart from costs, I mean, the, the more fundamental problem also seems to be sales. You know, if you look at uh, the January numbers for GM, Ford, and Chrysler, <clears throat> they just had fifty point six percent of auto sales in the U.S., while the Asian companies had forty two point one percent, which is a record high. Uh, do you expect this trend to continue? 
Well, I think it might for um, it, it may continue. It's been uh, headed in that direction for a while. One thing that made the January numbers stand out is that uh, GM, Ford, and Chrysler are trying to break a bad habit of uh, selling a lot of vehicles to the fleets, to the rental car companies, which is a great way to boost your monthly sales numbers, um, but which conceals perhaps a bit the realities of how appealing your vehicles are to the general public. Um, so they keep promising to break this habit, and they seem to be, at least right now, um, doing that. That causes these big year-on-year drops. But this shift of market share has been happening. Um, you're correct in saying Asian companies. It's not just Japanese. It includes uh, the Koreans are doing extremely well in the U.S. So it's not even a Toyota versus the rest of the industry story. It's um, it's a group of companies doing much better than uh, than Detroit's Big Three. It, it seems that Ford's in the worst shape as far as the U.S. car makers go. How did it achieve this distinction, considering that its rivals face many of the same problems? Well, it's it's something that certainly uh, a number of us thought Ford was the most likely of the big three to successfully emulate uh, Toyota and and some of uh, the other Japanese competitors. Um, so it is a bit of a a bit of a puzzle. I think Ford launched a number of uh, product diversification activities, acquiring a bunch of brands. Uh, betting that they could put a number of uh, premium brands all together under sort of a single roof, Jaguar, Land Rover, um, Aston Martin and the like, and uh, get synergies from that. Some of those have not have not paid off particularly well. Uh, they faced probably the most uh, disruptive uh, period of any of the companies during the peak of the internet bubble when they had in pretty short succession, um, the uh, the Firestone Tire Ford Explorer controversy, um, which was massively expensive and massively distracting for them, and they had under current then current um, CEO Jack Nasser uh, a very ambitious strategy to change their positioning from auto company to consumer services company. Uh, very much in keeping with the times of uh, new business models. Um, many people applauded them for being more farsighted than most auto companies, uh, and it collapsed as quickly as the internet bubble did. Um, combination of those two things, I think they, they really never quite recovered. Do you think there's a merger on the horizon for Ford? Well, it's hard to see who who would actually want to merge with them um, at this point, and uh, I don't get the sense that that's anything that the new CEO, Alan Mulally, is spending too much time um, thinking about. Uh, apparently, they did uh, make contact with Carlos Ghosn after his failed effort of an alliance with GM to say, uh, well, you know, if you're, we're in the same neighborhood if you're interested, um, and I think... Uh, Really, though, neither party needs that kind of, of distraction right now. Um, you know, part of what Ford has done is accept the reality that they're going to be a much smaller company. And they've done a very dramatic shrinkage. Um, if they can begin to make the company work at that smaller size, uh, I think they have a chance for a comeback. This is an industry that has big, big crises, and then you look back a couple of years later and companies do bounce back. Um, so I am usually rather cautious about predicting you know, dramatic disappearances or the like. But Ford is going to be a much, a much smaller company. 
So even though <clears throat> we saw Daimler Chrysler being created, I guess we won't see the creation of Toyota, Ford, or another company like that. No, I think the era of the big, the big mergers in the auto industry is is over. Um, you know, it's an industry that's always had economies of scale as uh, both its its sort of first most fundamental rule of economics, but also in terms of managerial mindset, that's 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 always loomed very large. Right now, some of the most successful auto companies are small ones that stayed independent. Um, I mean, BMW in a sort of specialty niche, but but Honda um, very very visibly on the on the more the mass market side. And nobody, certainly not the executives at Daimler and Chrysler, believe that uh, that being big is the answer to success in uh, this industry. Right, right. And going back to the question of costs, uh, how much do you think of the car companies' problems have been caused by their obligation to the unions? Well, so so this is, of course, part of the uh, the historical legacy of um, of the very success of the big U.S. automakers. Uh, so not only that they had a relationship with unions that goes back a long time, but also that really from the very beginning of the post-World War II recovery, they began signing increasingly generous uh, contracts with the unions on on both pay and benefits. Um, and that continued uh, to grow up through probably the 70s. And then there's been some steady retrenchment of different kinds um, ever since then. Actually, a lot of foregoing of pay by the unions in order to keep benefits, so that now benefits gets the the kind of the 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 focus of the attention. You know, they have competitors that are that are um, building cars in the U.S., paying wages at their assembly plants that are very similar to theirs. Uh, those are younger workforces where they don't have anything like the same benefit costs. Um, you know, I'm sympathetic to legacy costs that are higher. I also know that um, these are not things that are easy to get action on in the absence of a crisis, as I as I mentioned a bit earlier. Um, but I do think the U.S. industry could have seen this coming, and the union, and that perhaps they could have done a number of things years ago, particularly on the healthcare cost side, where the the um, it, perhaps in a way, uh, I would criticize the union strategy of uh, allowing all sorts of concessions on the pay and sort of transfer of worker side, and insisting on protecting every aspect of that healthcare contract as if it was sacred. Because there are a number of uh, you know gold gold plated features there that really almost no one in America still has. Um, that now, as they get ripped away, um, union members feel is a great betrayal. Um, but it's it's in a way a, an overdue uh, waking up to some of those realities. We were talking early this morning about the fact that Michael Dell, who's now coming back in as mm. CEO of, of Dell, is uh, not going to pay any of his managers' bonuses this year. Mm. Mm-hmm. And yet, we also read. Um, that Ford is contemplating paying a bonus to its salaried workers because so much of its top management is leaving, um, even though this promise of a bonus is infuriating the union workers who claim they've been giving back you know, millions of dollars to management over the years. Um, given these circumstances, uh, are the bonuses a good idea? It's, it's a pretty inflammatory act at such a time, certainly, um, symbolically. It's a dilemma to be losing a lot of management talent. Um, in a way, Ford also just had this big buyout plan for its hourly workers, and many more took 
the buyout than they expected. It's a sign that throughout the ranks, from hourly workers up to management, people are losing faith that Ford is going to come back. I'm not that confident that bonuses by themselves restore that loyalty and that faith. They may keep some people from walking out the door sooner. Um, Frankly, there aren't a huge number of alternate employment uh, opportunities right now for big three auto executives. Um, So I I think I can imagine better timing for it, although I'm sympathetic to uh, the dilemmas for a new chief executive who sees some of his most talented people leaving. The the basic problem for GM, Ford, and Daimler Chrysler seems to be that there are various tried and tested ways of either cutting costs or increasing sales, but none of these seem to be working as effectively as they have in the past. And so far, at least, Wall Street uh, seems to have been willing to finance Detroit's losses. Uh, Can this continue? Yeah, I I think... There are really two things that I would point to that I think kept the uh, Detroit automakers from facing up to some of uh, their problems sooner. Um, One is simply the uh, protected niche that they had with SUVs and trucks for a number of years. Um, This was partly uh, initially a regulatory uh, loophole, and they also had expertise in those categories um, that their competitors didn't have. So they had a period of time when they sort of had that area to, to themselves. And these were hugely profitable vehicles. So uh, I, I liken it to a kind of addiction um, that they really found they couldn't break. The profits were coming so easily in an area where they had so little competition. Um, And as competitors, first of all, started responding with very competitive products, uh, but also energy prices, et cetera, consumer taste shifted away from those large vehicles, they really weren't ready. They weren't ready with a contingency plan. So, I mean, fine to sell vehicles where you have an advantage and you have a high profit margin, but be ready for for other things. And then the other thing was exactly as you mentioned, all of the um, incentives that they were placing on vehicles to move them to achieve certain economies of scale, to keep their factories operating at certain levels. Um, there was a sense that volume would solve uh, most everything, it would certainly buy them time for the next wave of fantastic products that they were telling themselves would, would, uh, would win over consumers. Um, I think that is also a kind of uh, addiction that's hard to break. And um, of course, you train consumers to expect you to pay them to take you know your vehicles. And over time, that weakens the brand. It uh, distorts all of your sales and marketing activities. They have found it a very hard habit to break because every time they've announced we're going to stop doing this, they have a terrible period of sales. Their dealers start screaming, Wall Street is concerned, and they usually have introduced another round of some kind of sale or rebate. Um, so I've become a little bit uh, um, you know, skeptical when I hear the announcements that we're going to break away from this. Once they are through this period of quite drastic downsizing, it should be both easier and more natural for them, in fact, to, to sell less, um, to match their now reduced production footprint. Um, I think the sooner they get to that, the better. I don't mean to keep picking on Ford, but um, Ford has said that they expect to make a profit in 2009. 
Uh, and I guess the question is how realistic is even that projection? And is it based on any concrete facts or is it just this, this hope that their strategy of downsizing, et cetera, will pay off? Well, I haven't seen um, the numbers, the detailed numbers that they're using. I'm sure they've had to show numbers um, to to Wall Street and and other analysts, um, certainly to creditors. They've They've borrowed a tremendous amount of money in order to invest in new product. The um, the one other uh, kind of big turnaround that's uh, in everybody's memory is the Renault-Nissan alliance. And part of what Carlos Ghosn did at Nissan was uh, generate a huge amount of capital, um, partly in his case by selling off uh, equity stakes in suppliers that were part of the Kairetsu, but using that for a massive uh, surge of new product. And that was successful. And if Ford can uh, get some product before the public that uh, people find exciting and match that with their now trimmed down cost structure, um, I, I think it's it's uh, it's they're going to have all this debt to pay off, uh, which which is what makes any specific year projection a little bit hard to to assess. Um, you know. Nissan Renault had, it turned out, some wonderful synergies in terms of producing those new products with a combination of Nissan's very strong engineering and some of Renault's styling flair. What does Ford have that they'll be able to bring anew to their product portfolio from this now surge on product at a time when they've lost some of their talented engineer, uh, product engineers and the like? Um, that's, I think, the biggest risk. Speaking of Ford, um, let's imagine for a moment that Mr. Alan Mullaly, the CEO, were in this room with us. Uh, what's the one piece of advice that you'd like to give him? Um, well, maybe I'd give him two, if you'd allow me. Um, of course. Uh, I think of one that's more internal and one that's more external. Um on the internal side, I think I would uh, warn him, and he may not need to be warned, that um, the loss of a massive number of experienced employees from their factories and, uh, well, particularly their factories, but many other parts of the organization, is something to be careful about. Because if uh, even with good new products, they suddenly hit uh, terrible quality problems or terrible problems with meeting the dates of their product launches or any, some of the basic block and tackling operational things that people expect in this industry, um, it could all be undercut. Uh, they have a brief window to, to reestablish themselves and they've lost a wealth of, of organizational knowledge and, and that's a risk. Uh, more on the external side, on the product side, um, Ford has certainly been uh, advertising and talking about uh, trying to rebuild the image of the American muscle car. Certainly that is uh, something people associate with Ford. Um, I think the way the car product market has gone, um, there are niche products that uh, get you some buzz and some excitement, uh, but We've seen now in many different cases the effect really doesn't last that long. So um, they could actually be very successful at doing that, 
but it wouldn't help them because they really need to be selling large numbers of the more bread and butter cars. There's another part of Ford's history, which is, I think, more uh, reflected a bit in the fact that uh, that Ford employees still call the company Fords. It's a family company. It has a long sense of connection to American history. And uh, many people owned Fords not because they were uh, muscle cars, but because they were reliable family transportation that felt like you know part of America. So if they can reestablish that link in more of the core of their product line, I think that'll help them more than the uh, than reviving the muscle car image. One last question. Um, just wanted to mention Toyota, uh, which is in uh, could surpass GM this year to become the world's largest automaker by production. Uh, sales went up ten percent. Ford's dropped nineteen percent. GM's dropped sixteen percent. What are the implications of Toyota's muscle for for this industry? Well, everybody's been uh, watching carefully for that moment when Toyota will be number one. Um, it's been an inexorable trend in that direction, so it will happen, and the exact timing of it I don't think matters all that much to anyone uh, except perhaps the, the, the press coverage. Um, uh, there's some bragging rights that go with it. GM has indicated they're not going to yield easily the position of number one. Um, but Toyota's momentum is is tremendous. Um, they continue to set the benchmark uh, benchmarks in the industry in in many ways. They've had a few uh, problems of late. Um, very consistent with their approach, they're uh, very intensively focused on those problems. I, the ones I would uh, that have been given quite a lot of coverage. They've had some quality problems. They've had some extensive recalls. Um, They worry that they may be growing um, too fast and may be introducing new uh, products too quickly or the product life cycle may have gotten too short. Um, So we shouldn't assume that every trend up till now will continue without any deviation, you know, that Ford and GM will continue to do badly and Toyota will continue always to do better and better. Uh, Hyundai is another company that's been doing extremely well, um, but uh, both due to, uh, to to currency fluctuations and also other things that Hyundai has done to improve their quality, um, their costs are rising. Um, so we may have this uh, unexpected uh, situation where Hyundai begins to be constrained by the fact that their costs are getting too high and Toyota may begin to run into some difficulties because of quality problems, um, not what we would have expected a few years ago. So again, the the, the ability to, um, to be resilient, to learn, to recover from adversity, whatever it is, is going to continue to be absolutely critical. Toyota has an extremely strong track record of being very good at that. And I know from their internal culture, they don't spend a lot of time patting themselves on the back about how great it is that they're number one. They're very self-critical about all the flaws that they see. That gives me some confidence that they'll continue, maybe not without some bumps, but uh, to be the strongest in the industry. I have one more last question for you. <laughs> uh, we, we talked about uh, Toyota and the Korean uh, car companies. Now, China has been saying that they want to start selling cars in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And lately, some Indian companies, uh, notably Mahindra and the Tatas, have also been making similar moves. Do you see any sort of unanticipated competition coming from either China or India that could change the balance of the U.S. auto market? Um, well, 
So the entrance of, of Chinese and Indian car companies into the world uh, industry picture is, I think, already making a difference. How much impact it'll have in the U.S. market in the short term, I'm not so sure. Um, I think the greatest opportunities for both the new Chinese and Indian companies will come in in domestic sales, and the opportunities for grabbing um, part of that tremendous growth are very high for them, much more difficult to break into the U.S. market. Um, it's a great uh, symbolic goal uh, and sign of, of achievement, sort of having made it, if you can sell your cars in the U.S., the toughest market in the world. Um, but in the short term, I think the opportunities domestically are so high that it makes sense for them to put their energy there. Also, you know, all the multinationals are in there trying to grab that too. So if they neglect their home market, um, they may lose some ground. Uh, that said, I think if the if the... If the established automakers neglect uh, areas that U.S. consumers show they're very interested in, such as very low costs, uh, say under $10,000 vehicles, uh, that creates an opening that the Chinese will be very pleased to fill. And of course, they may show up first, not under their own brand names, even though they would dearly love to do that, but uh, in producing vehicles for someone else to sell. And already Chrysler has made much of the fact that they're looking for a Chinese partner to build a car, a, a Chrysler, that they can sell in that very low-cost range. So that that would be my, my bet. Um, looking at the history of, let's say, the Koreans, the most recent uh, country to really rise to prominence, uh, I think... China, India, any new entrant will have to um, meet the quality expectations of American consumers and that that's not going to be a fast process for anybody. Maybe it'll happen more quickly than it did for the Koreans, um, but it will take some time. And they can use their domestic market as a more of a, of a testing and learning ground for making those quality improvements because in the short term, the consumers won't be quite as demanding. Great. Thanks very Thank much you. for joining us. Okay, you're welcome. My pleasure. For more information, please visit our website at knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.